Hello and welcome to the second season of Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. In today's episode, we'll be looking beyond the easy answers and thinking about meaningful actions with three very special guests. First up is Annabelle Williams, journalist and author, and she'll be helping us dig deeper into some of the more unexpected sides of the gender pay gap. Then we'll hear about crisis management with a difference from Luai Al-Romani. Now, he was the former head of finance and planning at BBSF, which was the largest privately owned bank in Syria at the moment war broke out in 2011. Finally, we'll talk to Nigel Inkster, former director of operations and intelligence for the British Secret Intelligence Service, no less, about the looming techno wars and the role that China and America play in them and what it means for all of us. In the virtual studio with me, as ever, we have Rob Gardner from St. James's Place. And today we're joined by Vicky Foster, also from St. James's Place. Welcome, both of you. Hi, Matt. Really delighted to be here. Hey, Matt. Good to be back for season two. Absolutely. I mean, we're going to be looking today, delving into some of the sort of, I suppose, the big questions. But it really, it's quite exciting, isn't it? Because all of the interviewees we've got today have taken us into sort of really odd little places that we wouldn't have thought about. And often we, we skate through our lives not thinking about. Um, and I suppose life can feel like a popularity contest and, and a search for quick fixes. But this thing about no easy answers, I mean, that's, that's really at the heart of what I think St. James's Place excels in tackling for people, doesn't it? I think that's what makes this particular um, episode so interesting. And how, how do you bring three very, very different varied topics into a conversation and find some common themes and and that's exactly what I'm really looking forward to talking about today. We're going to find out. Our first guest today is Annabelle Williams, a journalist for The Times among others. She spent years researching and writing a book about the big question, why women are poorer than men and what we can do about it. In fact that's the title of the book, it's out now and we spoke to her about it. I started writing this book because I wanted to share the facts that a lot of people think that gender equality is has been achieved and that campaigning for further rights for women is just irrelevant. But I knew from my work as a financial journalist that women are poorer than men throughout their lives. And it's not just about women who are trying to get a seat at the boardroom and knocking on the door of the C-suite. At the other end of the scale, women are poorer than men in retirement. Women are poorer than men when they, after divorce or when they're trying to raise families alone. And even though I knew those things, and that was the genesis of this book, whilst I was researching it, some of the statistics that I uncovered absolutely floored me. Like, consider this, 67% of homeless people in Britain are women. Women are the majority of the statutory or legally homeless. Now, Most people would think of your typical homeless person as a rough sleeper. And it's true that the majority of them are men. There's about 5,000 in Britain. But there's this tribe of women of no fixed abode who are housed temporarily. They move from women's refuges to council-funded bed and breakfast hotels. They stay in hostels or they crash on a friend's sofa. And then there's been a huge amount of focus on the gender pay gap in the last few years, which is fantastic. But there's been very little discussion of how that affects a woman's life chances 
whilst she's working and the effect that that has on her later life. So I'll give you this um, statistic, which also shocked me. In 2015, of all the first-time buyers who bought a home, only 8% of them were women buying a loan. That means that 92% of first-time property purchases involve men. If you look at single men, twice as many are able to buy homes by themselves as single women. Now, that's huge. That has a real effect on the way that young women live their lives and how they're able to get on with their lives. Were there moments when you were struck by just how our own society feels when stacked up like that, very alien to us? I mean, I think in Britain, like in any society, there's a tendency to look at the world around you and think, this is how it is. This is how it's always been. But we forget that there's a whole world out there. And economic inequality between the genders is based on assumptions about what women and men are capable of, their aptitude, and what they should be doing with their time. And that's culturally constructed. So there are other places in the world where women do earn as much as men um, and do progress into senior roles at the same or higher rates of men. I'll give you an example. So Romania's construction industry has a gender pay gap of 20% in favour of women. And in Hungary, that figure is 11%. Um, In Slovenia, women working in waste management and water supply, again, earn more than 10% more than men. Now, these are traditionally male industries. And what happened is, during the Soviet period, these authorities wanted to show that their economic model worked. So they encouraged women to get specialised and trained in uh, traditionally masculine areas and to go out to work alongside men in these industries. Now, there was resistance to women going into uh, the workplace um, at a similar level as men. But over time, that began to change and women were assimilated. So um, you ended up having the archetype of uh, the female tractor driver, the female labourer, the female engineer. The legacy of that is that not only do women get to go into kind of male, what we consider in the West, male-dominated industries, but they're also able to rise up to uh, higher earning positions. And I think this is really important because there's so much focus in Britain about getting girls to study STEM subjects. Now, firstly, that's cultural because in India, for example, it's usual or it's far more common for girls to go into study science subjects. There's no concept that a girl couldn't study maths or science at university. But it's not just about getting girls to study those subjects. It's about what happens once they're in the industry working alongside men. And what we see in uh, Britain and the US is that Uh, Young women go into these industries and then they're not able to progress their careers. And a lot of that is to do with things like unconscious bias, um, the structure of the workplace. It doesn't fit around school hours and really the assumption that women are caregivers primarily rather than engineers or doctors or anything else that they might want to do. And how much of it do you think is to do with transparency? I mean, last year, we saw the case, I think, of um, the BBC and the Samira Ahmed case where, you know, she had to literally take her own employer to court in order to, 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 to get equal pay, both recognised and awarded. Uh, and do you think that idea of, you know, we're very British, we don't talk about pay, we don't talk about pay, everybody pay is very secret. Has that perpetuated the gap? Absolutely. So the lack of transparency has aided and abetted inequality in the workplace. And 
this is really key to understanding because let's look at what's happened since the gender pay gap started to be more widely discussed. The government's response was to change the law so that companies with more than 200 employees had to report their gender pay gap figures. Essentially, companies, and it was only the biggest companies in the country, most businesses have fewer than 200 employees, they just had to do a bit of research and then publish a report. That doesn't do anything to actually change. It, there was, it was, wasn't incumbent on companies to do anything about the gender pay gaps that they did find uh, within their workplaces. And actually, last year, when the pandemic broke out, companies were allowed to drop that. So it wasn't even perceived as so important that it needed to be done every single year. Asking companies to do a bit of research and put out a report showing that people are being paid unfairly, that doesn't do anything to help the people in the business who are going to be both men and women who are being paid unfairly. Now, a lot of books and podcasts have come out by um, high-flying women with great careers, and they are aimed at helping other women negotiate their pay. It's all very well to say that one way we can address the pay gap is by getting individual women to kind of woman up, go into the office and ask their boss for a pay rise. But you don't even know what you're negotiating for if you don't actually know what people around you are being paid, whether they're male or female. And there's this idea that men negotiate their pay and women don't. Well, actually, the research shows that women do ask for salary increases at the same rate as men. They're just less likely to be given them. And do you think, I mean, what would your prescription for society be right now if you had a kind of a martin luther type number of points to nail to the cathedral door what would yours be right now so there are so many studies that have found what works and what doesn't when it comes to um, for example mitigating the impact of unconscious bias in the workplace the problem is that these practices are rarely incorporated into the hiring and firing decisions that businesses make there's one simple change that could be made today And that is employers should be banned from asking prospective employees for their previous salary. This is because when a boss takes on a new member of staff and bases their salary on what they were earning in the previous job, there's a risk that pay discrimination from the last job is carried forward into their new one. This isn't just a matter for women, but for anyone who's been unfairly paid because of bias or stereotypes. So people of colour, older people, younger people, people who just weren't liked in their previous job. And how have you found it just personally, having having written the book? Do you feel like it's given you sort of um, x-ray specs and that you can you can look at a lot of things in just everyday situations and go, that's interesting. That's a, that's a massive vector for inequality there. Because that, that must be that must be both fascinating and frustrating beyond measure sometimes. I think it's really emphasized to me how much um, predominantly male-run governments make decisions that unwittingly disadvantage women. I'll give you an example. So there was the case of a young woman called Nicola Thorpe who turned up for work um, for a nine-hour shift wearing flat shoes. Her job was going to be a receptionist, but because she wasn't wearing high heels with a heel of at least between two and four inches, she was sent home without being paid for the day. Now, the government looked into this And there was a parliamentary inquiry and it found that discriminatory codes uh, in terms of dress for women are widespread. But it then went on to say that the existing law 
says that those things are already illegal. So if women aren't happy with it and they find these things in the workplace, they need to take their employer to a tribunal. At the same time, legal aid has been massively reduced. So funding for legal representation and advice is only available to the tiniest minority of people. I was also really shocked to find that on a population basis, salary is quite closely linked to a woman's weight. So the slimmer a woman is, on average, the higher her income is likely to be and her salary will tend to fall with the higher the weight and as she moves into the so-called obese category by BMI. For men, it's the opposite, actually. Underweight men tend to have a pay penalty and their salary will increase as they get heavier until they reach obese. There's a cultural prejudice there that affects both men and women. But I think what I'm trying to say is that free women, free men. It's, you know, breaking down these kind of gender stereotypes. It's vital for both women and for men. Vicky and Rob, there's uh, some fascinating stuff in there, you know, not least um, the fact that there seems to be much more to it than anybody thinks. And it's not just a case of, of yeah, treat everybody equally or, or we have an equal pay structure or whatever. There are big societal changes here, aren't there? Absolutely, Matt. Um, and look, this isn't just complicated, it's complex. We're dealing with years and years of perceptions around the role of the woman at home, as a carer, at work, and the societal norms that have built up as a result over decades of years. Um, And I think what Annabelle does really, really neatly is reframe this issue. Yes, there are statistics in there that are frankly shocking. um, And and we're often surprised when we read information like that. But actually what she's suggesting, I think, is that to tackle this, it's not, there's no silver bullet. It's going to take a collection or a series of small actions, small, focused, deliberate actions to untangle this. Right. I mean, there are some, some fascinating things where she talks about, I think, parental leave and the fact that even if you have a couple that are, who are both focused on, well, I want to take my leave as, as, as a father as well, and, and, and everybody treats things equally. The fact that historical, the legacy of historically higher pay for men means that it's normally the female who ends up sort of taking time out of work, not for any ideological reasons, but economical reasons. Rob, I mean, where do you see hope in this? I, I think Vicky's point about it being complicated and complex is is right. And I think whenever we see system change it requires three things first it requires awareness so we may or may not like the gender pay gap report or the world economic global gender gap report but these start to create awareness the stats that annabelle was sharing just creates that awareness vicky's exactly right all change in the history of the world of change has always started with a small action and then it accelerates and the, the, the challenge is, and, and, and I would say this, is that it's a bit like compound interest. Where it's like a snowball. It starts off really, really small and it moves and it grows and it builds and it grows and it builds and it grows. And unfortunately, it takes a long, long period of time. And we can really see this in the data. Again, every year, the World Economic Forum does this global gender gap index. And what you see is that the, the countries at the very top, Iceland, Norway, Finland, Sweden, New Zealand, Ireland, actually pull ahead more and more and more. 
just like compound interest because they've got it and they start to get into this virtuous circle. Their governments are almost a parity of men and women. They've had a higher percentage of women in leadership positions for longer periods of time. That then flows through the the entire ecosystem. So uh, I, I am optimistic because we've seen change happen many, many times. And this is just an area of change that needs to happen again. And the, the, the really interesting thing is actually, you know, when you when you do look at those countries, you know, and, and especially the Nordics, but you start to see all sorts of other benefits accruing to society because the potential of this, you know, 51, 52% of the population, give or take, is unlocked suddenly. I mean, they're, they're leading in things like sustainability. They're leading in productivity. They're leading in all sorts of other ways, innovation and so on. Vicky, this, this feels like a massive, almost like the most dunderheaded thing in the world, doesn't it? To sort of to bog down half the population's brains and to, to, to fail to reward them properly. And that's why it's such a frustrating issue. You know, I mean, when, when you look at it on the face of it, you're absolutely right. We're, we're underutilizing half the world population. But for me, uh, this is about representation. And at its heart is decision making and good, sound decision making. And what we've seen throughout the global pandemic as an example is that where you bring different perspectives into a room, round a table to make important decisions, you benefit. You benefit from you know, the, the cognitive diversity around that table. And that's what we're talking about here, I think, getting to a point where we can make these difficult decisions, knowing that we've taken a broad spectrum of opinion into consideration. And this is things like, I mean, I'm guessing here, but we're, we're talking about things like the fact that a balanced board with, with cognitive diversity is, is, is better at spotting potential opportunities, potential risks coming from other places and so on. Whereas the classic cufflinks, pale stale male board would, would think in one particular way about one particular problem. Sure. And, and for me as well, it's about empathy. How do you build a, an understanding, a deep understanding of somebody else's uh, position, situation, experience? And, and that requires us to sit back and listen and to, and to be interested in other people. Well, if there's ever a case study of that empathy, and especially among leadership, our next interviewee, Luai Al-Romani, is a, is a wonderful example. He was the, the, the sort of strategic lead of one of the, of the biggest bank in Syria. And as the country tumbled into civil war and destruction and internecine warfare, his job was to try to reassure people, not just people out there, the customers, hyperinflation, all sorts, but the people behind the scenes to let him manage things his way and to see if he could make it work. Now, Luai's book is called Lessons from a War Zone, How to Be a Resilient Leader in Times of Crisis. And we're going to go over to him now. Sometimes doing the right thing by customers might not be doing the right thing by staff, or sometimes doing the right thing by the ownership structure might not be doing the right thing strictly by the letter of the law at the time. I mean, it feels reading the book as if you almost had a, a crash course in um, diplomacy at the same time and managing different people's demands and expectations. Well, I think uh, diplomacy is uh, essentially about managing relationships uh, effectively. And maybe in normal uh, times, the typical behaviors that come to mind are those that are usually seen as being charming or as being suave. Like, I mean, these are uh, typically the uh, qualities that 
uh, define diplomatic, being being diplomatic. But in a, a crisis, we notice that people don't really care if you're charming or suave. The two key enablers are really whether you are building a trust and meeting needs and about being very practical and pragmatic about these needs that uh, emerge. Uh, so, I mean, let me just uh, tell you a story. Uh, early on in the crisis, uh, we would see queues forming outside of banks. Uh, and I think that, you know, seeing, seeing a queue is almost the perfect uh, uh, barometer of an early uh, crisis. Like, I mean, we did see queues forming outside of supermarkets in the UK and elsewhere in the world during the pandemic. And in uh, Syria, which was a cash-dominated society, we saw queues forming outside of banks. So what do we do here? Uh, most other banks decided to delay withdrawals. They put limits on how much people would uh, withdraw. Uh, I mean, for us, the way we thought about it uh, is that, you know, uh, maybe in normal times, you can try to, to outsmart people. And the people might uh, politely say no and uh, decline. But in times of uh, crisis, people will hate you if you try to outsmart them. So what we did is that we stacked banknotes uh, outside the tillers of our tills and windows. And we, we almost exaggeratedly showed that we had lots of cash and we wanted people to see that and people to talk about that. And uh, we uh, allowed the people to withdraw as much money as they wanted. You know, at the end of the day, there, there was a fear. And there was a panic, uh, regardless of what we thought about it, we, we had to accommodate this uh, panic. And uh, the last thing we wanted to do is to downplay their fear and, and show, show them a sense of uh, know-it-all and uh, sort of a belittle the, the, uh, the uh, crisis going on. And did you pick up, uh, I mean, there, there are lots of stories, for example, from the Great Depression in the United States, where the brands that uh, entered the Depression and then decided to cut back on on public presence and maybe save money that way, kind of went down because people didn't people lost trust in them. Whereas the brands that went, look, we're still here, we're going to be here with you, your Coca Colas, for example, or Ford or whatever, they exited the tough times with much more market share because people had thought that they're okay, they are dependable, they're not going to go away. Is that is that an effect that you saw with public sentiment coming towards you and and, and the bank? The short uh, answer to this, Matt, would be. Uh, public sentiment during a crisis is uh, essentially shaped by the actions you take. R really, it's it's uh, almost all about the actions uh, you take, and not not about the different words and uh, messaging and uh, signals that one might uh, evoke. I mean, we were very mindful of that principle really early on, and we knew that uh, at the end of the day, a public sentiment would be shaped by by the actions that, that we take. And whether we would be able to to really fulfill our mission. So, uh, so I mean, for us, it mattered a thousand times more for our customers that we were able to to meet all of their banking needs during uh, during uh, the crisis, no matter what happened. More so than 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 maybe a bank that was that wasn't really as as competent in uh, doing that, but uh, but maybe engaged in a lot of virtue signing or branding uh, exercises or maybe donating a buck here and there. Uh, people really judge you based, based on what it, uh, you do. And people, and the uh, thing is that, you know, people don't really t talk, talk a lot about this, but there's this sort of uh, admiration for, 
for people and organizations that uh, that always boldly try to pursue opportunities and uh, have almost a laser focus on doing what's really required of them. And I think public sentiment is really mostly shaped by this. Do you look at so-called crises that are happening elsewhere in the States or in Britain or anywhere and just think, honestly, guys, this is not too hard. Why are you, why are you doing so badly at this? So, Matt, uh, after having worked for more than four years in one of the most difficult places in the world and really having that uh, hindsight and uh, insight, I, I would somehow understand why, why many people are, are propelled to, uh, to have this uh, inclination to do a lot of foresight and not be very comfortable in uh, dealing with, with this uh, unpredictability. And uh, this is what we did. Uh, I mean, things become a lot more uh, difficult. Uh, the, the inclination is to do a lot of uh, planning, a lot of uh, foresight, uh, trying to, to imagine the, the, the unfolding of uh, state of uh, things. And, uh, you know, it's been almost 10 years since, since the war started. And the uh, questions that we had at the outset of the war, we were asking a lot of uh, questions on how the war will be unfolding, when, when it will uh, end. And uh, 10 years later, Matt, we still don't have answers for many of these uh, questions. So, so really, we, we, we learned uh, that it was best not to preoccupy ourselves and spend uh, energy on uh, things that we could not control. You know, there's, there's a fair bit in the book about the... I referred at the top to that balancing act that you had to do, the operational side, and then also kind of managing, I suppose, um, elsewhere, partners within the bank, uh, people, uh, whether it's um, government or international partners or what have you, how much, how much of the difficulty that you faced was practical, like cities and branches with security issues or being damaged, and how much of it was around the different stakeholders that you had to really to ask them to to stay off your back and to keep trusting you every day. Well, I can uh, assure you, Matt, that during a crisis, uh, almost all stakeholders uh, become uh, a lot more demanding than in normal uh, times. And uh, many of these uh, demands are uh, aligned with our organizational uh, priorities and needs. And, and when that uh, happened, we needed to, to ensure that we were, we were keeping them informed. But I mean, of course, just as you can uh, imagine, there would be cases where where there wasn't this uh, alignment. So, so the uh, underlying principle for us was to ensure that we almost uh, had a laser focus uh, on the three priorities uh, and the three fundamentals that we needed to get right now, no matter what. Number one, maintaining our trust, the uh, trust of the uh, public. Number two, maintaining very good liquidity. And number three, uh, ensuring that we always are able to lend in a competitive way. These, these were uh, our three uh, fundamentals, uh, and this sort of became our baseline uh, against which we would gauge or, or assess uh, any decision we were taking. What did you see happen to, uh, as it were, the consumer mindset through the different stages of uh, the crisis and then the war and then the conflict? I suppose as it affected the bank, you know, was there a time suddenly when all businesses uh, and, and customers tried to stop borrowing and tried to stop spending and just froze, as you often see in a, in a crisis? Or did you see 
uh, at a certain time, was there a return to activity? How did it all work? You know, initially there was a lot of uncertainty and uh, people maybe tend to freeze and and just, you know, play play the waiting game, you know, initially because uh, this is completely something new. And uh, uh, this is what we saw initially. Uh, people uh, froze, uh, not a lot of activity. People starting uh, to to wait uh, uh, until things uh, become clear and for, for events to, to, to unfold or for some sort of uh, closure to happen. But what, but what happened uh, is that, you know, a couple of months uh, later, you know, this was uh, clearly uh, something uh, that was just unfolding. It was still in its early phases and you can't just wait your whole life. You uh, can't just be uh, passive while, while, while events are, are taking place uh, around you. Uh, those that became so fixated on maybe survival, uh, this uh, survival uh, somehow evolved uh, into being suicidal because, uh, uh, because if you stop doing uh, anything and you're not really coping with the changes that, that are happening, this doesn't really help you in, in uh, prospering and uh, thriving. So, so yes, uh, I would say that this happened uh, early on, but then some, some people, some organizations realize that yes times are very disruptive but this could be a time to to uh, to to actually create a a strategic rift and really uh pursue uh, pursue opportunities no matter what is happening and uh, and i think uh, the, this would be maybe similar to 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 the pattern we saw here in the uk uh, at the outset of the pandemic where maybe initially people uh froze and were just waiting but then with time, the ones that did better in a crisis were those that, that stopped confining themselves to this, to this uh, survival mindset or this waiting game mindset. Nothing more to say to you, but what an incredible story. Yeah, look, I mean, I have to admit, I'd never thought about banking crisis in Syria until I, until I heard him uh, and I think, look, the, the, the book is of its time, right? Because there's some strong parallels with 2020 and COVID. I'm guessing going into the crisis, they didn't know, or the civil war, they didn't know when it was going to end, were the Americans going to intervene, what was going to happen. There were so many unknowns that Luai and the board could never think about. And, and you know, take away civil war and replace with global pandemic, and you have that same construct, but now happening over the entire planet. And and I think the interesting thing for me was Luai's kind of recognition that you can only focus on what you can control, and then some just very clear and simple principles that they they start to uh, to navigate through through that civil war, which is just in, just what an incredible and inspirational story. It is, isn't it? And and the the thing is, when I was talking to him, he seems like such a a, a nice and gentle chap with a, with such a cool head. And I was always th- thinking of all those books. Um, that you see by kind of typically kind of American CEOs, you know, how I did this and I did that. And he seems to be the opposite of that kind of tub-thumping guy. He's he's a very quiet leader in a way. And I wonder sometimes, especially because, you know, there's that wonderful story about him having to put actual uh, actual currency up in the window of the bank to reassure people rather than just saying, look, we're going to do this and we're going to do that very much actions not words uh, and i wonder whether that's a new style vicky i mean is 
it, could this be the sort of the dawning of, I suppose, a new style of leadership that's a bit more emotionally intelligent, a bit calmer and a bit less kind of uh, Trumpian, for want of a better word? I think you're right, Matt. And I think what we saw Luai do spectacularly well was really generate followership. You know, people wanted to to be led by him. They trusted him. It was that that ability to build trust in the direction he knew he had to had to move in, despite the fact that you know he was in the the midst of a, a crisis. Um, and I think what's interesting is uh, we, we talk about IQ and EQ. What he also, for me, demonstrated was this adaptability. So AQ. So how do you how do you move empathetic leadership into that sort of space where you can be nimble and agile and adapt to to the situation that you find yourself in and bring people with you at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. And, and right at the heart of it seems to be this idea, and I think you touched on it, Vicky, of 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 trust and credibility and and transparency that he seems to have cultivated and, and I, i'm just thinking of him having to sort of to keep the his, his backers happy his staff happy the customers from from panicking and everything. and you don't do that do you with somebody who whose word you can't trust um and and of course in these times you know when everything is both complicated and complexified and as we've touched on we've got s- sort of social media and, and outrage and the people retrenching is that a harder thing to keep and to engender than it's ever been? I think so. I think increasingly as well, we're seeing the younger generation come into the workplace with this almost visceral sense of fairness, demanding transparency, demanding honesty, demanding our leaders to break down these complex challenges that we're facing into things that they can understand and they can process. So I think he made building trust central to his plan, but he did. And there's a parallel here with what Annabelle's suggesting, I think, which is he he broke it down into very simple, very clear steps to to take action. And I, I think that for me was the most powerful thing, how he, in the midst of a crisis, faced with all that complexity, focused on getting the trust of his stakeholders and taking some real clear, simple actions to lead the bank out of the situation they were in. I mean, that's, that's, that's beautiful. It, Rob, there are, there are parallels here, aren't there, with, with the handling of, of all sorts of things like COVID or what have you. And actually, I, I suspect generally that the discourse around politics or around decision-making fed into by the kind of rush to judgment on social media and all the white noise around it where, you know, do we see governments and we see leaders all sort of trying to cover up their mistakes or, or pretend that they knew everything all along. Would it be a, a, a sort of a blessed relief if somebody once said to a, an interviewee, for example, an interviewer, for example, I don't know, but like you, I'm going to try and work it out. Yeah, look, and I, and I suppose we did have elements of that from some of our political leaders around the world, which is, you know, if you think about the decision to go into lockdown at the start of 2020 was, we just don't know what this virus is. We don't know what it's going to play like. So better safe than sorry. We're just going to lock down early until we figure this out. That was definitely a, a message that, that was coming up from some leaders rather than this kind of let's go with popularity. So I think the danger is what Luai didn't do was get 
pulled into the lure of popularity, right? And and so there's being vulnerable, there's building trust. But what he didn't do either was just try and do what was popular, which is where a lot of people fall into. Yeah, quite sobering. And also a very nice link to our third guest today. He's a man called Nigel Inkster. Now, he spent decades in British intelligence, and he's now the director of transnational threats and political risk, no less, for the International Institute of Strategic Studies. I spoke to him about his new book, The Great Decoupling, China, America, and the Struggle for Technological Supremacy. And what really stood out to me was the importance of understanding that wider context of a problem before we rush into action. If I'm right, one of your theses is that, in fact, rather than necessarily just cyber conflict, we're entering an age of cyber borders and cyber consolidation and, and walled gardens and defences. Could you expand a little on that for me? Well, that's been, that, that, that's been happening for a long time. And I think, you know, if we go back to the early days of the internet, you know, there, there was this all, almost, you know, missionary zeal uh, promoting the idea that the internet would uh, connect the world, make governments redundant, you know, bypass them, et cetera, et cetera. But um, actually, to paraphrase Mark Twain, uh, the, the demise of government proved premature um, and uh, governments you know, began to fight back. And it was particularly the more authoritarian governments like China that led the fight back because uh, of this fear of what they termed information weapons, the idea that information could be weaponized, that you know, the internet could serve as a, as a vector to introduce to the population subversive ideas, ideas that challenged the prevailing narrative of, of, of the government. Um, we saw Russia taking the lead in international negotiations on cyber governance and cyber security, arguing this point and saying we need a, you know, we need a cyber treaty, which basically you know, creates a, a globe of walled gardens, to use your term. Do you sense that there's a disconnect now in the room between the way that the that governments are looking at things and maybe the public mood is flowing and the kind of the Malibu beach houses and, and, and ivory towers in which some of the tech entrepreneurs are still kind of living? You know, the reality is that these companies have become so large and so powerful, um, both domestically and internationally, that their actions are often more consequential than those of the U.S. government, and um, you know the people are now beginning to question whether this can continue to be the case, and and I think this whole debate is coming into stark relief in the context of U.S.-China relations, where what you've got on the one hand is the United States government saying we need to limit and curate our digital engagement with China while most of Silicon Valley are saying, well, no, hey, you know, we, we, we need to cooperate. You know, we want to go to China. We want to make money, you know, as much money as possible. And so you're seeing the, you know, the, 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 the short-term commercial imperatives bumping up against um, the arguable need for a more long-term strategic approach. And I think, you know, the, the Silicon Valley generally uh, is having – is going to have to shape up and fa face up to the reality that it is a strategic actor in a growing geo-strategic great power contest, 
Um, and uh, that, you know, we're, we're with notable exceptions, I would highlight Eric Schmidt as an example of, of, of that. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're being slow to, to recognize this. We have seen sort of cyber incursions, I suppose. I mean, a lot of noise has been made about the uh, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg and and kind of Russian botnets and troll armies and so on. And we have the same uh, in in China, I suppose, sometimes stoking up misinformation or disinformation. But but do do you do you feel that there is a happy? I mean, what would it look like? Would it look like kind of the uh, personal responsibility or an increased vetting or perhaps the idea of uh, something often talked about um, real identity? I think that ultimately we're, we're you know we're going to need to look to uh, technological evolution to solve you know the, the the really big problems. You know the internet was never designed with security in mind, and if it had, you know if, you know if 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 the approach to the early internet had been safety first, we never would have had the internet the way we do. It just wouldn't have been possible. Um, so, so I think that you know that that that, that uh, early phase of anarchic creativity is something we had to go through. But you know, I think the time now has come to 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 look at this, look at the consequences, think where we are, and what needs to be done. Um, and I think, given that you know the current architecture is inherently insecure, given that the current business model um, for development is based on rush to market. You know, get your product out there before the other guy does, and don't worry about security. We'll sort that out later. We're probably going to have to re-architect the internet for certain purposes. You know, I think it's ridiculous now. You know, that the, the, the governments are operating so many critical systems on um, infrastructure and architecture that is so inherently flawed that it can never be fixed. It can never be made secure. I mean, my my I think my favourite story of of um, of a, a, an unintentional data telltale was was that you'd never have looked for was that running app recently that where uh, a lot of the um, a lot of American service uh, personnel were using it and it, it ended up revealing the exact maps of all the perimeters they were jogging around in Afghanistan and so on. <laughs> exactly, that, that, that is a perfect example of the sort of unintended vulnerabilities, you know, un, unappreciated vulnerabilities that these systems can reveal. Absolutely. And, it's, and, and I think finally, uh, there's a question. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't normally be asking this, but I'd be remiss not to ask it. When you saw the, the, uh, the Reddit uh, uh, action uh, around GameStop, was that, did, you, did you laugh or did you face palm? Was it like this was always going to happen? And why, didn't, why does nobody put the dots together that a number of a critical mass of effectively social media users can have far-reaching effects because it's already happened politically? You know, it, it is very interesting what's happened. It occurred to me that it's probably unlikely that these um, you know, sort of mass movement engagements will um, of themselves alter the trading system i you know i, I think that's unlikely but actually you know, if you think about it the, 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 this kind of uh, you know, um sort of shareholder democracy um could have other more positive spin-offs uh, for example you know when the ceo of the acme you know grab it all corporation is proposing to pay himself some you know obscene uh, bonus um, you know, a mass movement of activist shareholders might well have something to say about that. And, and, and I think there are other you know, areas of corporate governance and corporate responsibility where you know, this, this sort of behavior could 
potentially have a beneficial effect. Nigel Inkster there, former intelligence officer and author of The Great Decoupling, China, America and the Struggle for Technological Supremacy. Wow, these are all very, very big and kind of global strategic type terms. How does it affect us? I mean, are we, are we looking here, you know, behind the, the sort of, I suppose, the sort of complexity of this? Are we just looking at the age old question of how do we engage with a, an, an entity, let's say China, that could could either be an opportunity or a threat. China, for me, is the great example of a nation state that not, doesn't think in years, doesn't think in decades, but thinks in centuries. Uh, Ray Dalio, a very famous investor, talks about superpower nations. And obviously, Great Britain used to be a superpower nation. We live in the, the era of America being a superpower, and that's economic might. It's the size of your army and your navy. It's the size of your educational institutions, universities and schools, your technology. And so he's got this kind of indicator of five or six things. And what we're seeing is China coming out and and effectively threatening the US position as the world superpower on all of those measures. And one area where it is is leading is is technology. If you think about all of the conversations we had last year about Huawei and, you know, do we do we even allow uh, Huawei to be be running various parts of our, our telecommunications uh, infrastructure. So the, the, I think there's a massive temporal element here. At the same time, there is the kind of commercial opportunity, whether it's TikTok and we all want to, you know, well, not me personally, but, you know, millions of people around the world want to log on to TikTok and, and use it or lots of apps. Uh, uh, actually, the data has been sort of used and processed behind the scenes uh, in China, for for Tesla, a lot of their growth and manufacturing capability comes from China. So we end up with this this tension uh, again. You know, on climate change, China is both the worst and the best. It is doing the most renewables, but has the most coal. So, so there's a there's a sort of there is a sort of paradox uh, when it when it comes to dealing with China. And we you know we know that it will be the become the biggest economy in the world. And so you know not not dealing, not trading with the largest economy in the world probably doesn't work for the world either. So that that's why it is so, as, as Ricky said earlier, about uh, about a different topic, about the sort of gender inequality, uh, is it this is both a complicated and a, a complex subject. And where do we go from here? Do we have to think differently about everything from investment to business to politics? Do we have to have a new model that isn't just um, you won't believe this one trick that can get you rich, or you won't believe this one trick that can solve uh, various um, uh, deep-running problems in healthcare or education. Do we need to think a bit more like like China in terms of of, of taking the long view? So I think I'd, I always remember I'd, I'd, I've been you know we're lucky at Saint James's Place we have a, a operations in Singapore and Hong Kong and and Shanghai and, and previously I'd, I've actually set up a business in. In, in Beijing. And I remember uh, someone very senior Accenture saying to me, Rob, what you've got to understand, if you want to open up business in, in China, you cannot go in there with a Western philosophy or mindset about things. If you've ever been to China, the first thing you do is it's like retina scanners, you like digital finger, they know all of your data. So your starting assumption, your working assumption needs to be that all of your data on your laptop from the moment you get it, is being captured. 
And yet you may or may not like that, but you for for a billion people in China, that's normal. That is the norm. That is their their way of being and and, and way of acting. And and so I suppose it's the it's the, the danger of of seeing things or or how to see the world through different people's eyes uh and and get their perspective. I've shared with you on a previous show that I've met more female CEOs of financial services firms in China than anywhere else on the planet. And Vicky, I saw you you know, nodding hugely when, when Rob was saying, you know, it's vi- how vital to see the world through others' eyes. If you can expand on that, because I think that's that's a, a thread, isn't it, that unites all of our interviews today? I think so. And, and I was I was reflecting on what Rob was saying and, and in terms of how he built cultural empathy. You know, how did he understand the culture in the place that he was seeking to set up a new business? And it... it, it <laughs> To be honest, sounds quite basic, doesn't it? You know, let me find out about you. Let me know about you. Let me understand you. And, you know, the parallel as well, is, of course, is in the advice business. How do we understand our clients? How do we really know how we can help and support them? How can we give them the best advice? And I, I think in the context of um, China and of uh, what we heard Nigel talk about as well. It's about making the the sustainable choices for the future. You know, we can, we can give great advice in the moment for today, but what does that look like in 10 years time, in 20 years time? So it's having that longer term mindset versus the kind of very short term, this works today. I mean, that's that's fascinating as well when we think about the sort of the the, the face to face and the kind of the the partner based view of, of advice where you can actually rather than having somebody f- fill in various categories on a data form that you can actually start to listen and start to see things and also by cultivating a relationship like that you can help people and steer them towards what is right and not just take the most popular course for them in that moment. I think that that sort of long term long view. Feels, feels, I suppose, more necessary today than at any time. Well, guys, what a fantastic conversation. Thank you again so much. There'll be more on the St. James's Place website, link coming up at the end of this, for anybody out there who wants to investigate the books. Thank you to our interviewees today, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. My name's Matt Potter, and a very big thank you to my co-hosts, Vicky Foster and Rob Gardner from St. James's Place, and of course to our guests, Annabelle Williams, Loyal Romani, and Nigel Inkster. To learn more about the series and to listen to more episodes, go to sjp.co.uk slash TCT podcast. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.